So what I will start with is a little bit about how I came to this because I did not, I never took a, feminist, a feminism course in college. I actually was, was sort of blissfully unaware of notions of privilege, of my own privilege, of privilege in the world, or even the fact that being a woman could be considered a liability or mean, meant that I was less than. There are a few like little incidents dotting my younger years, like at summer camp when I realized that, you know, somebody at the same stage as me was getting, you know, and a guy and he was making more than me. Oh, hi. <laughs> and uh, I know her. That wasn't me calling out someone for being late. Or, you know, like when I actually really remember this uh, so strongly, when I was going to run for president of, in uh, grade 13, because I'm from Canada and we had grade 13 back then. Um, <coughs> random, I know Canadian. Canadian arcana. Um, and my boyfriend at the time told me that I should run for vice president because there's no way I'd be able to beat this guy, Nick Stein. And looking back on it, there was a, absolutely I would have beat Nick Stein. On every sort of like objective criteria, I beat Nick Stein. But um, I didn't, I, I, I took my boyfriend at the time's advice and I ran for vice president and I, you know, didn't, didn't try because I thought that like there, that there was some reason I wouldn't. So I'm not going to spend this whole time talking about my awkward high school <laughs> years. Um, but it, it, more to the point that it didn't really occur to me that that somehow being a woman could be considered a liability. Even even knowing that I went to the same law school as my mom had gone to and graduated from 20 years before, and even sort of hearing her talk about how difficult it was for her to get an articling job, even though, which is like a, a clerking job, in, again, another Canadian term, um, despite the fact that she had done very well in school. And sort of all I remembered of her going to law school was us, you know, dropping her off to study in the big mean building that took my mom away from me. So that was, um, uh, that was my experience and probably like the limit of my awareness and caring about it. Um, but you know, over time and through experience, you can't help but become aware. And I had awareness uh, through different patches of my experience. Uh, the first being when I was a summer associate at a law firm. I had like a very awkward uh, obligatory lunch with my partner advisor, who was like the head of MA, and I had been assigned to him. And we had like, he was like, you know, do you like New York? And I was like, yes, I love Broadway. I'm so excited to see musicals. Do you see musicals? Like, no, I take my boys to sports. And I was like, Quiet, quiet, quiet. And the the next day, down in the lobby where everybody would, you know, go off to their lunches, I saw this same partner with a bunch of other male, part, like big mucker par partners, and these three dudes in my class. One of whom was like this, like tall, blonde, golden boy. Another who was like the like the slick back hair, like how you doing? How you doing? That guy, like. And it was just I was like, oh, okay. I was the lunch he had to go on. This is the lunch he wants to go on. And my, my next thought was like, I don't really care because I actually don't want to be a lawyer. So I didn't really, <laughs> really. and so I, I didn't really think about it until a few years later when I had left law, I was doing freelance writing and I was doing a lot of comedy. And I was working uh, with, like, uh, in, a, in a sort of a comedy class that would become a show and started, like, started to have the experience that is now a recognizable hallmark of the experience of women in comedy, which is like, you crack a joke and no one laughs, 
And then a guy, two seconds later, says the same joke and everybody laughs. <laughs> and the sort of like the counterpart of that in the boardroom is like a woman says something and it's not noted and then a man says the same thing and it's like, great, great idea, Jim. Here's your promotion. So these are, these are tropes. I'm not necessarily saying that they apply to everybody's experience, but these were things that applied to my experience. And anecdotally, I have heard that other women, other people in less, you know, in, in ratio-rific positions uh, have also had that experience. And so these, this was sort of the framing for when I sort of plopped like a very random stone into the pool of media. Uh, I had been randomly recruited to Media Bistro. I didn't know much about media. It wasn't my thing. In fact, after I had left law for writing, I had sort of like rebelled against smart stuff. And I was like, oh, I'll be like a Carrie Bradshaw. Early 2000s. So don't hold it against me. And I sort of meandered into the world of media, which was uh, like, you know, the learning curve was like that. And I learned it. But I just, I started again to experience and notice. And so I started in 2005, and I think like one of the first big events that was part of my awakening to this was uh, when Media Bistro itself, I was working for Media Bistro for Fishbowl New York, and Media Bistro itself published a, uh, like a list of like predictions for 2006. <laughs> really long time ago. There will be these things that people type on and they have messages. Um, and, uh, and it was like 20, p 20 predictions all from guys. And they're like all from like the best media prognosticators say what's going to happen. And so I actually, because my job was to report on media, like I actually wrote a post saying like FYI, not cool, home team. And I got some serious blowback from that internally. And I was actually like naively surprised. And, I, and the naive surprise would continue at various organizations I was at when I would like point out, like, hey, just FYI, you know, at, at the Huffington Post, you know, if there were like, there was the home page looked overwhelmingly homogeneous. Or, you know, if there was, you know, when we were getting columnists, uh, at media, you know, when, when you raise these things, you start to notice them, and you start to notice that other people don't notice them. So that was, that was sort of my experience. I, uh, there were two major triggering events for me that sort of, it, it, I mean, I would har hardly say radicalized, because I, I wouldn't call myself radical, but like that's just a term that applies, sort of like awakened. Uh, one was uh, watching Katie Couric ascend to the anchor chair at CBS News in 2006 and just how unbelievable that coverage was. And you, I mean, you wouldn't see that again and you didn't see it when Diane Sawyer uh, took, out, oh, took over at ABC. But when Katie Couric did in fall of 2006, it was pretty unbelievable. The amount of focus on her hair and her legs and whether she had gravitas. Like, gravi if anybody remembers following the news at the time, it was seriously like every other word was gravitas and like a real concern that maybe she couldn't quite take it. Maybe she was too perky from the Today Show, as though one cannot take one's lighthearted morning self and then, uh, you know, adopt a more somber face when talking about Iraq and Afghanistan. So that was one thing. And the other was, I don't know if anybody remembers in 2008, a woman <laughs> ran for president, <laughs> and there were sort of some issues around that. So. Reporting on Hillary for the Huffington Post, when um, it really it really felt like there were two things that were, go that were going on there. Number one was an overwhelming excitement and support of the Obama candidacy, and 
sort of a corresponding resentment that Hillary was getting in the way and just felt like she was marching up in her pantsuit to like, you know, do the Napoleon, like take the crown and put it on her head thing. Um, and, you know, as far as the objective arguments about her candidacy and about the Obama candidacy and about the race were concerned, that was totally one thing. But it, I remember being so shocked, especially in early, late 2007, early 2008, how just the, the way in which she was derided in casual media, like in chatty media, was seen as acceptable. And there are a couple examples of this. There was um, Mike Barnacle, who I'm pretty sure I saw at the airport, by the way. Anyone? If he's on Morning Joe tomorrow from New York, then we can say that I saw him at the airport. Um, Mike Barnacle, nonetheless, I'm about to call it something he said, saying that she, rem she reminded him of a first wife at a probate court. Uh, Tucker Carlson, yeah. Tucker Carlson saying that he involuntarily crossed his legs when he heard her voice. I can't remember who was responsible for the Hillary nutcracker, mm -hmm. but one of the features was stainless steel inner thighs to make sure the nuts were really cracked. Um, Chris Matthews, uh, also known uh, chiefly for the thrill that ran up his leg thinking about Obama, was uh, also known for having said that Hillary Clinton only got to where she was because her husband had messed around. This was, I think, in January or February 2008. Um, there was the, the David Schuster co uh, comment at MSNBC for which he got uh, uh, briefly suspended, which was about how Hillary Clinton was, quote unquote, pimping out Chelsea on the campaign trail. This is while, you know, every other candidate with progeny was like putting them out there fresh faced and eager for their campaigns. Um, you know, I mean, there was like Maureen Dowd every other week. <laughs> there was like something about a nagging housewife. I mean, there was so much. And I was really just flabbergasted and part of it was the fact that I was Canadian and so I had sort of like leapfrogged over a whole two terms of Clinton baggage. I had sort of like had been on the news in the background while I, while I went to college in Canada and did not care about any of this. Um, and so I didn't come to the table with a feeling that, it, you know, you don't understand, it's, we all know her. Like people in the press corps who had covered the Clintons earlier would be like, we know her, like, she's not likable, you know, that sort of thing. And it's like, okay, that's totally fine. You can bring all of that, you know, walking around knowledge to your coverage, but that's very different than being sitting around the table at Morning Joe and laughing at the first wife walking into probate court comment. So the Hillary thing ended up being sort of like amazingly... I mean, it was, it was dwarfed by Sarah Palin. It's like a whole other can of worms. You know what? Let's just not talk about that right now because it will be painful. Um, but, uh, but what was interesting about Sarah Palin is that she, took all, of, she like, took all of the angst around Hillary and just like she actually did the thing where she like, took the crown and put it on her head and she's like, I'm looking forward to taking those 18 million cracks and bringing them to the White House, right? And uh, so it was just like 2008 was a very, very interesting time to cover media and to be awakened to the sort of wild inequities, not just in who was delivering the important news and who was seen as having authority, but also in like, how people were regarding uh, you know, people who are similarly situated but of different gender. So that's when I talk about change in the ratio, I, that's what I use. I use the similarly situated test, which any, any former lawyers or lawyers in here 
I don't even remember what it was for. It was just like taking two, two people in the same position, similarly situated, and see are they treated differently with those same things. Because a lot of times, especially now that I'm in the tech world, you hear, well, you know, we, you know, I know we have all guys on our panel, but we really need someone who can code. Or we really need someone who's a real tech founder. And the examples I use for real tech founders who don't code are Gary Vaynerchuk, who uh, you know, started out making videos about wine, and Ben Lehrer from Thrillist, who started out sending emails. So I've discovered that there are slightly and subtly different categories and different standards applied to women. And by the way, when I'm talking about changing the ratio, I mean, I deliberately called it change ratio so it didn't, wasn't genderized. There's no pink anywhere. Um, but it also applies to, you know, any, any other community that recognizes that it has not had the same advantages as more privileged slices of the population. And uh, I have just recently really awakened to a whole other community that has, uh, that was, you know, previously mostly invisible to me, and that's this community. <laughs> I mean, I can't even tell you, like, how awake I am now to accessibility issues and just how, how difficult it, it is to do stuff if you, if you are not 100% able-bodied. So this is, I know it's big, it's a big plate, and there's a lot uh, on it, but that's sort of how I came to all of this. And, and there's, um, I wrote down a couple little notes, um, and, uh, and the first was about signaling. So, because I think that what is, where we are right now is sort of interesting and awesome and awkward. It's, it's the thing that is awkward about it, sorry, the thing that is awesome about it is that it actually has gotten to the point where they're really, like you have seen the difference between the Katie Couric in 2006 and the Diane Sawyer in 2009, I think it was. Um, and you know, you've seen the fact that there are just, you see more women doing things, pregnant Marissa Mayer, you know, Sheryl Sandberg, like you're just, you're seeing more everywhere. It's starting to be less and less anomalous. It's starting to be less and less that there's like one or two women awkwardly sort of like taking on the woman mantle. Um, and, and, and that's all good, but what that then, what that loses you is the like really easy argument, which is the other reason I called it change ratio, where I could just take a step back and say like, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in, in debating the merits of individual speakers. Let's just assume that everybody is great, but where the ratio is consistently like 90% men and 10% women, I'm just gonna assume and make it a rebuttable, a rebuttable presumption that there's something amiss. So as soon as the ratio starts getting better, it hits like a certain point of better where people are like, you know, done, like drop the mic, we're fine, we have like, now we have five women on stage out of 25, so that's totally cool. Um, and, and that becomes more challenging because then it becomes less about the number and more about the place, and the place being in the you know in the media industry, it's not about the people who are necessarily writing about, let's say, the election. But how many of, of those people who are all in the, in the every day of headlines that are being generated about the 2012 race? How many of those people end up being included in, let's say, Mike Allen's playbook on a daily basis? How many of, of the pundits punditizing about 2012? 
end up around the table at Morning Joe and in what proportion. And actually, that's sort of a funny anecdote about that, as I have like a zillion one screen grabs and pictures and stuff on here. And I was, uh, I was trying to download an app and it told me I didn't have enough memory, so I like was going through and deleting stuff. And one of the things I deleted was like a screen grab of uh, like a Morning Joe segment that I'd taken because it was like five male heads. And I just, you know, as a reflex, I screen grabbed those things. It was, it's been on my, my, uh, my iPad for a while. And uh, and then I remember I was doing this, and I didn't know if I'd have to like if I did have a uh, like a presentation, a PowerPoint. I was like, oh, I shouldn't have deleted that. I was like, wait a second, like I have a whole bunch of Morning Joes downloaded on this. I'm pretty sure I could get another screen grab or 20 screen grabs if I wanted to. Because if you watch Morning Joe, and I do, and I enjoy it, and I love it, and it's, the guy who does the music, if you pay attention, is excellent. <laughs> but um, it's really hard not to notice that it's inevitably Mika and four guys at the table and let like some and occasionally Ariana, Tina or Katie Kay or you know, but like there's really not you can't you can't list the regulars off about Roman the way you can about men. And that's and I don't think anybody at Morning Joe and I I'm sorry to pick on you if you're paying attention where if wherever this is broadcasting, um, eventually. But uh, but it's you know it's it really is a, like, a very obvious place to start because it's again it's there are many shows the number but Morning Joe is the place that's like a place of influence there's another place that I like to look um, is Charlie Rose huge fan of Charlie Rose you know there's no man I've gone to sleep with more often in the past few years than Charlie Rose. <laughs> um, but you can't help but notice that the guests are like are overwhelmingly men, the experts are overwhelmingly men, and when when it does, when it is woman, it is, it is you know, the ratio of actual women on the show skews towards, let's say, <coughs> actresses, like talking about this amazing film that they're in and why it's really meaningful. Um, so again, that doesn't, that doesn't color my enjoyment of individual episodes of Morning Joe, that does, uh, of uh, Charlie Rose. That doesn't mean that I'm not learning when, you know, they're talking to who was like, recently, who is actually very interesting, David Brooks, very interesting from, from the convention. It doesn't like change <coughs> the fact that I, you know, enjoyed that, that talk. But across the whole, you do, you start to notice. And you start to notice that, that that's also in indicating a lack of perspective. You know, when you have when you had like the day after, I can't remember which, I think it was the day after Anne Romney's speech. Again, I'm going back to Morning Joe just because this is fresh in my mind. But like the day after Anne Romney's speech, it was, it was still, it was like Mika and four guys. Like, she like stood up there and was like, I love you women! <laughs> you know, at some point, you might want to acknowledge that there are like other perspectives to have in that discussion. That's a really obvious example, but those per perspectives uh, emerge all the time. There was a recent study um, that, uh, you know, male and female economists look at things differently. Like, is there a, is there a difference between male and female economists? Like, sh spoiler alert, yes. And, uh, you know, and one of the differences is, is say, um, you know, uh, perceiving um, theories of wealth redistribution differently. Uh, and and even in the the, I don't want to go here too much, but just lightly touching on the the women's reproductive health and contraception debate, like the fact that that's not that that's seen as separate from economic issues 
and and issues for the economy as a whole. That it's that the notion of of women and women plus pregnancy equaling different economic <laughs> situation is not just seen as a given, and is, and that perspective is not introduced more often. Like these are things that that I think it was Kristen Gillibrand who said on the Daily Show, and I really noticed. I was like, hey. It's really not that usual to have a female lawmaker on The Daily Show. Um, he said that like that these conversations wouldn't be happening, these debates wouldn't be happening if there were more women represented at the highest level. So it goes back to what, I'm going to keep on going back to the number and place thing because I'm going to steal that, that's great. Um, and I think that I, I really want to like stop and, and say less time making anybody feel uncomfortable or like I'm picking on anyone. I'm actually not. I think that a very small sliver of people are bad, mean, sexist, racist, want to keep their beloved, pristine publication, network, panel, whatever, like, pure and unsullied by diversity. Like, I don't think that that is the reality. I think it is more about, you know, like, what people are used to, comfort zones, who you know, and, and who, who mirrors back your worldview, and what, you, what you've seen before that looks like this new thing that you're seeing, or more to the point, doesn't look like this new thing that you're seeing. So um, coming back to signaling, so you can have, um, so signaling is like, I mean, it, you know what signaling is, it's like sending signals about X, Y, and Z. So it sends a strong signal if you are, you know, if you're, if Mitt Romney is flanked by, again, I'm not trying to be political, these are things that are just coming to my head, but like it sends a signal if, uh, if Mitt Romney is flanked by an audience that is diverse or non-diverse, or if I, Obama is flanked by an audience that is diverse or non-diverse. And the reason we know that these things send signals is because like, an army of highly paid consultants are dispatched to make sure that absolutely everything is in its place and looks perfect. So um, in the world of tech and VC, signaling is sort of uh, used to talk about like the, the, the way people's behavior can affect the marketability of a certain startup. So, if um, if uh, if a if a previous investor doesn't follow on and, and invest again, like that sends a signal. That's bad signaling. If if or if somebody is like constantly, you know, it being Instagram next to X Y Z, like that sends a different signal. And I think about signaling a lot because I I am often sort of imploring people in. Who, who are in positions of power and influence to tweet about sort of my, my pet issues. I mean, shocker, people are tasking other people to tweet about their issues. Um, but, you know, I, I do a lot of, of monitoring, and especially when I started Change the Ratio in uh, mid-2010, as a response to what I saw as, like, a stunning lack of diversity in the, like, power and money echelons of the uh, tech industry, so uh, a lot of it was about people saying, oh, I totally support it, but then doing the same thing as that partner would do at my own law firm. They would do like the one tweet about the issue that was important, and then they would tweet, retweet, banter with, what have you, with the people that they chose to. And invariably you would see that that would skew heavily Mail and so these are these are platforms, right? Anybody who has like who is a respected person in any industry and they have a lot of followers. So who they support, 
look to, uh, you know, approve of, though that's all signaling. And so I pit a lot of attention to signaling, and, and I invariably see, especially across media, because I've like I've I, I've now swiveled my attention back to the political world, and so I have I've started to have a couple little mini debates with people who are like let's say like a like a classic, like sort of like in the club, white male political writer, let's say, and so I will, I will, I like, I'll send them stuff, like, like ready to go. I like, did you see this by this? Like, short link, super easy to tweet, and then they'll write back and they'll be like, yeah, that was interesting, but they won't tweet it. And even if I ask them to tweet it or be like, hey, it'd be cool if you tweeted it, they won't do it. But like, it like won't even think twice about tweeting or retweeting from the rest of the club. And so that's the sort could of that stuff that, that I'm sorry. Tweets are just not interesting to them. It They're could, it could be. Polite, yeah, so it, it absolutely could be. And that, so there's two, there's two parts of that. One is why aren't they interesting? And would they be interesting if they were by someone they knew or had been introduced in a different way? Um, we're, we're gonna, we'll get your chance to. And, uh, and the, the other, um, the other thing is that every, like for every single instance when you break it down to the individual of course every individual like if I don't get picked to be on a panel it could just be because I'm a blowhard or the person like thinks like you know like I just don't like girls on crutches or <laughs> like whatever or I like she's overexposed or whatever it could be all of any reason if you bring it down to me just like if you bring it down to Hillary like like yeah but don't you like we just don't like her but when you, when, that's why when you take a, just a, take a step back and say like, okay, fine. If it's not her, then why isn't it someone else? And then like, I, I mean, it's, at some point you just do have to acknowledge that there are systemic biases that sort of favor established power bases. And m most people within those established power bases are actually really friendly to and enthusiastic about doing the right thing. <coughs> Bless you. And, and not only doing the right thing, but also recognizing there's this whole other side of the story, which is that doing the right thing, by the way, is makes for a better product. Like diverse teams make for more successful companies, um, better profits and faster profits, um, more interesting like broadcasts and news reports, and, and, and most crucially, they, they cover you know, they, they cover you, they cover the holes in areas that you haven't experienced. So embarrassing gaffes or embarrassing connotations happen less when you have a diverse uh, group of people so that one great it heightens the chance that one person will be like, hey, Steve Jobs, it might be awkward if you call that the iPad. I'm just saying. <laughs> and by the way, that was like a huge story the day that the name was announced. And it blew up Twitter, and it blew up all over the place. But the mainstream media didn't pick it up. And I remember being like seeing reliable sources and seeing Howie Kurtz introduce the iPad, and and genuinely being surprised there was no mention of the fact that it had a certain connotation. Because there were some really funny jokes on Twitter, like "Don't take your iPad into the water where there are sharks," or anyhow. Um, and I'm I'm sorry if I'm being too, a little too real, but just. Realness is what we got to go for, um, but uh, you know, again, it's these it's these perspectives. It's it's people. It's someone there to say, oh wait, this is important. And the analogy that I like to use is Boggle. Any Boggle players here? Yeah, Boggle's awesome. Um, so we know you play Boggle, 
and you like write down all your words. All this like um, like there are their letters, and you shake it up, and then like the letters are all jumbled up, and then you have to find words. So when you you find your words and you're reading them out, and then someone else finds a word that you totally didn't see, and then they turn the board, and all of a sudden you see all these words that you didn't know. So that's what it's like having someone at the table with different perspectives. It's just a turn of the boggle board, and you see things differently that you wouldn't have otherwise seen. Um, so the only other thing that I wanted to um, to mention along these lines was the notion of pattern recognition. And this is another thing that I learned about from uh, from my experience in the world of tech and um, and VC and all that is uh, John Doerr, who is a partner at Kleiner Perkins in Silicon Valley, like one of the top VC firms. And, uh, and uh, no, that's fine. And um, he, so he gave some sort of interview uh, talking about who they're likely to invest in and said something like, when I see like, like a young male 20-something <coughs> dropout from an Ivy League school, like I am, because I funded a whole bunch of those, bless you, and found them to be successful, I'm going to be more likely to want to fund someone who looks like that. And that's pattern recognition. And that's, so pattern recognition is where you have a preconceived idea of who, what a thing should look like. So what should a boss look like? What should a successful entrepreneur look like? You know, what should an anchor look like? What should a president look like? These are all things that we come to uh, the table with preconceived notions. I mean, I'm not sure that many people are saying that now after the last week, but right at the beginning of the Republican primaries, I mean, every the easy uh, adjective to describe Mitt Romney was presidential because he looked like he was out of central casting. And why am I saying he looked like he was out of central casting? Is because like Google Mitt Romney and central casting, and you will find reams and reams of articles where people say that he looks like he was out of central casting for the role of president. But what, like it's a ludicrous thing. I mean, right now, you know, I mean, I'm I can't help thinking of FDR, another person who maybe you know didn't look like uh, like present, but then again went to like great lengths to conceal his his disability. But that's a whole other thing. Point being is that when you like pattern recognition can be good in terms of letting you see like areas in which things, you know, positive <coughs> things emerge. But when you look at it as the only way things can occur, when the only reason that you happen to have this slew of like young twenty something dropouts from Ivy League school is because, number one, they can afford to drop out of Ivy League schools, which, that's a biggie. Um, and number two is because th those are the channels that, that people like that always come to you through. Uh, then you're, you're shutting off opportunities for innovation across a multitude of other sectors. Um, so that uh, is base, that's it. that's it in a nutshell. I'm sure I have nothing else to say. Um, but the, the last thing I wanted to note is that there are you know, it, there, there's two sides to it, which is that, like, you know, like the gentleman pointed out, it, like, it could just be that that person X is boring, or it could just be that person X doesn't step up and, and isn't, you know, hasn't said, like, okay, like, I recognize that I have to take my destiny into my own hands and, like, show up. And uh, so when we sat down here and the call was made to come and join and take a seat at the table, I did notice, I think only one person did get up and take a seat at the table. I think it was a dude, I think it was you, maybe you, like, maybe not. Um, we're all friends here, it's all good, but like, 
take a seat at the table, take the best seat at the table, like raise your hand all the way up, none of this, you know, like male or female, like that's the only way to make it happen. You, and there is, a, there is a tendency on the part of women to hang back and not take that seat or not want to trouble anybody or bother anybody or to, to take, to assume the role that, that in many ways uh, society has like sort of unconsciously consigned us to. So there, there does have to be a conscious awareness on all sides of what the, the subtle and insidious norms are and, um, and that's the only way to go forward and change them. So, okay. that's all I um, I'd like to open this questioning first to students uh, who have comments or things they would like to say. Yes. Well, I remember in Holland there was a, a survey, they did. You might not like this, but this is what they uh, uh, said. They said like there are differences uh, between men and women and that is that in men there are more outliers, more, so to say, crazy people. And the people that are kind of like crazy are the people that are also willing, for example, to work 80 hours a day. And there are less women that are inclined to work 80 hours a day. And for certain high-level jobs, you kind of are expected to work that kind of hours, to go a little bit crazy, so that there is a normal tendency for more guys to be in those kind of positions because they're willing to go to that far lengths where maybe other people that are you know, more reasonable, uh, if I could say women are more reasonable, then, uh, and there are less outliers there, um, they might have said, no, this is enough, 80 hours is enough. This I is very much like Henry Slaughter's uh, yes. article. Well, that one, that was like 16,000 words. I, <laughs> I need a moment to compose myself to address that, but I'll just address what you said. Um, uh, the first thing I thought when, when you talked about like, ha being crazy is that it's amazing how like suddenly women are so much more crazy in the context of modifier for ex-girlfriend. Like, the uh, <laughs> women are crazy in, um, in ways that is, are, are conventionally acceptable to call women crazy. Um, and men are, are, are crazy in ways that are, are, are ex generally conventionally exceptional to, uh, acceptable to call, call men crazy. Um, uh, the second thing that I thought of when you talked about uh, how women might, might shirk from 80-hour week of working, I'm not a mom, but I bet there are a few in the room and I'm just going to say it sort of seems like a lot of work to me. Uh, and then the third thing is, again, bringing it uh, back to anecdotally, because having not seen this study or being able to respond to the data it raises and, the, and, and how that data was sliced, diced, and framed, uh, I can just say anecdotally that... Well, first of all, like reasonable has really not been much of, like an adjective that has been applied to me throughout, you know, every stage of my life. Uh, as one of the outliers. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, maybe, but but why? I, I don't think, you know, I've I'm 39. I've met a lot of people, you know. I've I've seen a lot of people who work hard and a lot who skate by, uh, and a lot who try really hard and don't have it, and a lot who have it and don't try that hard, and a lot, you know. I mean, it's a it's a Venn diagram on all sides, and I, you know, I, I I'm not. I'm not sure that a study like that, showing those results, can be attributed to innate qualities as much as it could be attributed to other factors like, you know, the burden of home and family has tended to fall on women, you know, 
disproportionately over the years. Rachel, one of the things you talked about is this group of pundits in the pundocracy. Yes. Huffington Post, Daily Beast, to take an example. I was looking at them this morning, and I would say that your thesis is entirely right as evidenced by this morning. I would say the top half dozen featured pundits were all male, as, my, as far as I can recollect. Both these organizations are run by, run by women, and both of them, my expectation, or, I, or what I would think is that the only thing they care about is ratings, is how many people yes. are going to look. And so what does get skewed in this outlier fashion is people who will say outrageous things, or people who are brand names already. Uh, but it's like the person who, the, the woman who seems to get more airtime politically than anybody else is you know, the blonde uh, Ann Coulter. is Ann Coulter, right. because she will say all kinds of crazy things. And women, <clears throat> as a group, you said it yourself, there may be more resistance to sort of going out and saying something nutty that is going to right. also prompt hatred reactions and, and, and slashing and burning online. I don't know. I mean, I guess the question is... You're like you, nailing it all. Keep well, talking. But when, you, <laughs> but when you factor in simply the idea that it's about ratings, it's not about... Right gender. I mean, presumably, you know, Ariana Huffington and Tina Brown would love to have women in these kinds of positions if they would produce the numbers. And it's the numbers that are the killer. Yeah, and, and I, will, I will say so, um, just for a bit of context, both Ariana and Tina both were great to me and for me and my career, both specifically, like, sort of like plucked me and said, like, I want you to be front and center and do stuff and... and so, so saw me as marketable, and I, I, I've never particularly noticed either of them to not be supportive. Uh, I, I mean, th I, I think there's, like, there's a few things that you said there. Um, the one that I do want to point out also is the uh, women are, are less likely to sort of like go forward and, and put their opinion out there, either like, like as a pundit or in an op-ed. Um, those are like those are the numbers. Like the, it's there's a, something called the op-ed project that is meant specifically geared towards helping women, you know, get over that that hurdle. And uh, I remember when I was at Huffington Post, it was right when I had started going on TV. I was actually I was on I was on Scarborough Country. And by the way, that was Joe Scarborough, who the first one was on Scarborough Country was like, I like that girl. Let's keep on having her on. So again, like back to the fact that I'm strongly emphasizing that I don't think this is intentional, um, and uh, and I and some someone <laughs> called me to talk about something, and I'm, and I was like, oh, you know, I don't think I know enough about that. Thanks, anyhow, and hung up. And the person sitting next to me, who uh, was Ben Wickler, who's now out of us, um, said, you know, a guy would never say that. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, like a guy would say, what time do you need me? I'm an expert, <laughs> and. And he said that you know he cited research from uh, SheSource, uh, which is a, one of many organizations that tracks this sort of thing. And so from that point on, once I recognized that, the fact that I had totally done that, I had said, like, you know, I'm not sure I know enough. You might want to ask someone who's more qualified. Um, uh, so I never really, I never turned down uh, TV for lack of expertise again. <laughs> Cut to 2008 when some random Canadian is talking about superdelegates. Um, but, uh, but so, so, I mean, I think so that, that, that is about, that's the same principle as like putting your hand right up or like taking the chair at the table. Uh, it, it's, it's about confidence and, 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 and putting yourself out there and 
you know, a lot of people talk about like men are more risk takers, men are more confident, and that's like that that frames it as a as a positive. Like those fantastic, virile, high testosterone men are so confident, and women are afraid and need help. Uh, and, but it, you can flip that, right? Like, women are less likely to take crazy, ridiculous risks. And then there, it's just two sides of the same coin. But I think it's definitely, definitely, definitely worth knowing. And also your point about backlash is also very, very uh, worth pointing out. Because it's, it is just a given these days that, number one, like a woman will get harsher backlash and backlash focused on how she looks. Uh, and number two, again, going back to the similar situated stuff, uh, you know, as women take on more power and more leadership roles, they are perceived as less likable than men. And so, like these, like, these are real and difficult and like naughty trade-offs, and they're not they're not easily dispensed with in a lecture, but they do exist. Yes. Um, well, as a daily beast pundit, <laughs> I have a lot of opinions about this, but. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of these discussions about women in the media and how they should be more prominent, and the numbers are pretty damning. You know, if you do look at the byline ratio, it's pretty bad. Um, and also it's true that there's the lack of stepping up. You know, um, I remember once there was a group that tracked bylines, and then they were complaining. Woman TK? Um, I don't know. I don't remember the name of the group. But um, they were complaining that they weren't placing their stories in styles and times, for instance. And in the Styles of the Times editor said that actually she had received no submissions from the group at all, even though they've been complaining. So there's this thing about the stepping up, which isn't, you know, it's like easier to complain than to actually put yourself out there. But at the same time, at places like Daily Beast and Huffington Post, even though they're run by women, there are institutional issues, you know, that make it harder for women to be prominent. You know, like I'll do my stories and they're promoted or whatever. But certainly there's a top tier of writers, and, and I'm not in that top tier. And the question is, why is there this institutional bias, and how do you fight it? And Newsweek's had a history of that. And um, there was a lawsuit a long time ago filed by women against you know, the bias within the workplace. But if you look at what happened at the time, there were some of the female writers that left, like Nora Ephron. And she did very well. So the question is, is it worth it fighting the institutional bias within the organization or to just go somewhere else where it's going to be more conducive. I mean, in theory, there's always like there's somewhere else is everywhere now. It's like Twitter, or Instagram, like Facebook, like see something, take a picture of it, and like you know, be at a secret fundraiser and like secretly videotape it, and boom, <laughs> you've got a scoop. So that's um, so. Uh, I mean, my path is not linear. It's not like I had any, I, don't, I can't even say really what I am. Like I, like, I can't even, when people ask me, like, what do you do? I'm like, uh, it depends on the day and who's asking. Um, but I think that that's where we are right now. Like, you create yourself, uh, like, a hybrid situation for yourself that, you know, that on the one hand speaks to your talents, on the other hand allows you to get to where you want to be. Um, so... I don't. Um, and by the way, what's your what's your name? Hi, I'm Rachel. Tara <laughs> McKelvey. Okay, so I will I will look for you on the Daily Beast. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I I think that a lot of it is is just engaging. Like here's a really good, very basic example. Like I wasn't really looking to like relationship build with Hugo Lindgren, who's the editor of the New York Times Magazine. I'm not pitching anything. I have no no near-term desire to but yesterday he uh, he like was t t he just read the book please kill me the the punk rock oral history of punk rock 
and he tweeted his top 10 moments and someone like alerted me to it and so I was like I used to love punk really punk Canadian and I like I went through and I looked and I happened to notice that it seemed like he t like everything he tweeted was like by guys so I you know tweeted at him like were there any women and then I like like I actually went to Amazon I started reading the book and like engaging with him about punk rock so random very very random um, but those are the kinds of things that do build relationships that like you know evidence your areas of expertise or where you want to have expertise and and I think that there's there's like there's the path that you're that you're on the like official path and then there there's like a whole other unofficial there's unofficial strands of stuff that you can bond with people over and 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 sort of and, and those are important and they feed into things like I can't tell you as someone who loves musical theater loves show tunes like tweets lyrics is a Sondheim nerd like it's actually ridiculous how many doors that has opened for me, it has nothing to do with you know Broadway, uh, you know, or or even karaoke. Um, but karaoke also really opens doors if you're good at it. But don't hog the mic. That's not cool. Yes. Uh, thank you, Rachel. Uh, my name is Anya. I'm an MVP student here at the Kennedy School, um, and really enjoyed your talk. My sort of fascination is with why so you know I really commend your kind of attempt to like change the discourse by approaching influential people and asking them to tweet things and I think that's like a measurable way to you know measure discourse um, but overall and I think this goes to your question of you know do you change the culture of the organization or do you just leave? well I think in public policy I see is the organization like America or you know the world so it's you know so like there's so small right, right so it's this culture change thing and so something I've become really fascinated by is that whenever you have a talk that's ostensibly about gender or women or you know whether it's in politics and media and tech whatever it's the same like people who come to it every time and there's a few of you who are like yeah. and there's so so many places that I recognize so I'm really curious about how do you get people to listen and pay attention who don't already and I actually if I want to I if I could ask this of like you were speaking of I don't think I usually see you at these kinds of events oh, no. I mean anybody who wouldn't normally like come to a women focused discussion why like what made you come here and what did you learn so if I asking no, you I mean, I think, them. yeah no I think that's a really that's a really good question because there is and that's one of the reasons why I personally had resisted for so long sort of like planting my flag 100% in the woman thing. I, that's how I described it. I was like, I don't want to be a woman woman. Like, I'm an everyone woman. You know, like, I want to be able to talk to everything. And you, there's a sense that as soon as you, like, like put the, the, the giant pink lipstick scrawl woman over you, then it's like a giant big pink velvet curtain, like, comes down and, like, you know, cane yanks you off stage and just to the woman pen. And you get paid less. Well, you know, oh, I didn't <laughs> talk about that. <laughs> and you get paid less. And, uh... And so it's it's hard, and that's why I've like I've always been a generalist, and I always I try to be mainstream. I try to be like non-frightening. You know, there's this this whole when you see it's really depressing to me when I see like like woman like Marissa Mayer say like, well, I'm not really a feminist. Like I don't really like that word. Like I, because like I like the the, the anti-feminist messaging did such a good job of making feminists seem like they like. You know, they didn't like men. They didn't like having fun, and you know, they didn't like looking pretty or whatever. So, for for a woman who wanted to do everything and also like like an awesome dress, as I do, um, <laughs> or like wa could talk for like hours about like Moroccan oil, which I have in my purse if anyone needs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, what is Moroccan? Oh my God. <laughs> so this is actually a really good. This is like a perspective thing. So it is. So it is. So this is just really great stuff. If you like have frizzy hair, I can feel my hair frizzing in this room. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, that's, that's fair. Um, I don't know, I'll find it. It's in, it's in my bag. But, uh, but you know, the, the, the Moroccan oil thing speaks to a larger point, which is about the fact that there's this, this um, here it is, like it's a little thing for you just like put on your hand, you smooth it over your hair, and then all of a sudden your hair is perfect and shiny and lustrous and not frizzy. Like Jewish hair, I, you know, it is what it is. I accept. Um, but, this is, this is the, the, the Moroccan was a really like good example, I'll get back to your, this in a second, uh, a really good example of that ghetto because uh, there was a, a guy, this guy Kevin Roos, who writes this, writes, started writing about tech for New York Magazine and so, so he's, his inaugural column was about like, instead of smart money, he called it dumb money. And one of the, one of the things that he, he pegged for dumb money was something called the Naturally Curly Network, which was um, like an, uh, an organization shopping and social network for people to talk about like hair and hair care products. And every, like guys dismiss that as, well, that's ridiculous. And women go mental because they're like, I can't believe that this exists and what do you use and what do you use and straighteners and toners and crimpers and whatever. And like, is it ceramic? Does it, I mean, there's like, if you ever walk through the hair care aisle in a drugstore, you will see like what kind of industry that is. And that's like, that's about need and money and marketability. So that's like, that's, the example of like the pink curtain. So um, I don't know. The way, one of the things that I've I've just tried to do is is, is come back to the value proposition all the time that it's like it's a bottom line money maker, and um, you know and 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 I do try to make it less about like woman and woman and but also to organize and participate in events that have like that don't have the ratio or woman anywhere, but just like embody it by having let's say like you know, like an even number of men and women on the stage. We, we've got some more questions, but we're running out of time, so oh, I will ask short questions and short answers. Okay. Sorry. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Laura. I'm a Neiman Fellow from the Institute of Press. And uh, you mentioned very briefly in this whole conversation parenthood, um, which I think is interesting because I, your conversation has, uh, has led me to wonder to what extent the notion that I'm also a mother and therefore can't work the 80-hour week that I imagine my male colleagues are working or my non-parenting women colleagues are working, um, how much of that is perception, how much of it is reality, and you know, how much of that is something that actually can be worked around um, to get more women into the I think it is it is both perception and reality. Like the perception is out there, but the reality is that nobody knows what happens inside someone's home and in their free time. And there are, there are plenty of people who have other other things that take up their time. Be it you know like people who are avid runners, and are, if you're training for a marathon, that's a really giant chunk of time. Um, but I think that. Uh, that's th that is a, sort of an individual and awareness thing in your own situation because you have to sort of figure out and you know how how much of it really does get in the way, if at all, um, and figure out your own workarounds. But but generally speaking, as a non-mom, can't really speak to it. I would um, I'm going to defer to you. Like you're you work with moms and and. We can pick it up offline. I mean, I think in our mom. Yes. Um, 
I think it's real, the perception that if you're a mom, you're not as committed. It's absolutely real. Every piece of research has shown that. It's called the maternal wall. Question here and then here, okay? Um, I really like um, your explanations and so on. It's a very broad topic, uh, and we can see this uh, around the world, even this. But uh, I think that most of it comes from uh, the way we treat children uh, from home and probably from t television and so on and so forth. So would you think that at the management level that you could probably talk to people who do productions to show women in a much uh, higher position so that people could relate and find similarities? And if it would be possible, how difficult would it be uh, to pass a law or something like this? Um, I have no idea if anybody's tried to pass a law. I know that that's, I mean, so the, the representation of women in media is like a, another huge topic we haven't touched on. Um, there's a documentary, Misrepresentation, uh, by Jennifer, Jennifer Siebel Newsom. Um, and Gina Davis, the Gina Davis Institute, is all about the representation of women in media. Uh, the, the sh a shorthand for sort of this issue is you can't be what you can't see, with, you know, which as, as an argument for getting everything out there so that kids can see that it's possible to do anything. Um, uh, as for, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the White House tomorrow, so I'll mention that. Oh, I'm like, I'm, you. I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm meeting at Woman in Tech, so I will mention that. There you go. <laughs> Bam, right to the top. Yes. Patrick Benhold from the New York Times. Um, I've been writing a lot about these issues, um, but mainly focused on Europe, and it's very interesting to listen to this debate in an American setting, which, you know, is in one fundamental way very different from Europe, and that is being extremely wary of government intervention, uh, which speaks to your point. I would, as, as a mother of two little girls, I want to say, uh, just make one contribution, which you know follows on, on a couple of comments, which is that I really believe, based on my personal experience, that you cannot have equality in the workplace in any industry until you have equality in the home. And I feel that motherhood um, is basically the mother of all barriers to get gender mm -hmm. equality. Um, in two ways. One, because there is obvious time uh, conflicts that arise, um, you know, we have to pick up our children from school, we can't go on networking, drinking beers after work, uh, etc., etc. Uh, but I think beyond that, motherhood um, feeds into stereotypes that go well beyond the population of women that are actually mothers. I think a very interesting statistic is, uh, in other words, you know, adjectives related to women, soft, you know, maternal, you know, consensus loving and all of that, which, which are kind of positive, but also mean that you probably aren't the hardcore businessman or leader that we want in this world. So I think all of that is, is actually linked. But one really interesting statistic that I wanted to cite in, you know, I lived in France for a long time, is that when you look at um, the pay gap, um, it's actually almost non-existent um, among um, very educated young people in their 20s. Uh, then once you go into childbearing age, um, you know, what is now average childbearing age from the late 20s, it starts by forking and we then see the gender pay gap that we are all aware of. What I found fascinating is that statistics comparing the pay of women and men in their early 40s, and these were women who did not have children. So all, a comparison of men with, with children and without children, just men, and the population of women who did not have children, you still had an 18% pay gap. And that, to me, says something about women often, well, not only the sort of petty sexism that you, remember, that you mentioned that is hard to quantify, but that's sort of around us, but I really believe that women are perceived as potential mothers or people who aren't 
by definition, are serious about their, their careers. So I really believe policy, um, well, from a European point of view, is almost, you can't get around it. You need to establish some cultural norms or some, some, norm, some policy norms that will then lead to cultural transformations that go way beyond some of the stuff we've been talking about here. Potential mother, that's a good phrase. Is it, are these statistics more, is there more of a gap in Europe or in America? Um, I haven't seen a study comparing non-mother women with men in another country. This was a French study, but it would be very interesting if an organization like the World Economic Forum conducted that. I think um, the OECD pay gap at the moment is uh, about 17%. And I believe the pay gap in America is lower than in France, for example. In France, it's extremely high, which is ironic given that they have a you know, pretty comprehensive policy set. But it's like 25%. Um, I'm sorry to say we're out of time. Uh, can you yes. wait around for a while? I know sure. there's some people who, who have questions, and if you'd like to come uh, talk to Rachel, she'll, she'll be hanging sure, around. Sure, absolutely. You. And, um, and you can ping me on Twitter. It's just my name, Rachel Sklar. And, uh, and yeah, thank you so much for Thank coming. you, Rachel.